Our scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the God, the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Begin by uh, thanking uh, Caleb for leading worship for us this morning. Can we thank Caleb? Uh, he is appreciate you, brother, uh, filling in for Cameron while he's on vacation. So we appreciate that. We're in the book of Philippians, um, several weeks in now. Looking today at a famous passage, Philippians two one through eleven, that has been so meaningful to so many and such a huge part of of my life and story as well as studying this passage, dwelling on it. It's so rich, it's so full, and so we need the Lord's help uh, as we come to it. Let's pray and ask for His help this morning. Thank you for your love that does not let go. I pray that it would just rejoice our hearts and our souls this morning that we have been loved by the Father, that we have been brought into the family of God that we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ, that all that is His is now ours. So I pray that you would warm us by the gospel this morning, that you would help us to see what Jesus has done, what He um, emptied Himself of, and then what He humiliated Himself for, and how He has been exalted now at the right hand of the Father, and that that story would be our story as well. We ask for your help this morning in the name of Jesus, that great name that's above every other name. Amen. So um, it's very slow going, but my sons and I are writing a novel right now, <laughs> a young adult adventure story uh, that they are helping me with, and it's, uh, we're only like in chapter two, so don't expect anything anytime soon. But um, it's interesting to think about stories and how stories work. And a few months ago when we started this, I was doing some research on just how, how do you plot something? Like, how do you, how do you tell a story, really? Um, I mean, I have some intuitions about this thing, but, but um, you know, how do you tell a good story? And in that research, I remember coming across the seven different plot lines 
Um, now, there's some disagreement about that. Some say there's nine plot lines, and some say there's three, essentially three. But the, the kind of consensus right now is that there's really seven types of stories uh, that, that humans like to tell. Um, there, there's uh, overcoming the monster. That's a classic story where a hero goes out and destroys a threatening monster. And of course, you can play with that story. You can make the hero, um, you know, a metaphorical hero or uh, an idea rather than a person. There is the, uh, the rags to riches story where someone who's da- downtrodden comes and is exalted in some kind of way. There's the quest, the journey that's far away, and the hero, he or she must go out and find or get something. Playing on that, then there is the voyage and return where they have to go get something, but then bring it back to a homeland, conquer something, and then move somewhere else. There is comedy, which is not uh, what we think of us as necessarily a story where you laugh a lot, but a comedy is something where there's some kind of social upheaval. There's upheaval in a family or upheaval in a city, and all of that gets resolved by a single event. In Shakespeare's stories, it's always a wedding, right? The wedding, and often in our romantic comedies, them getting together in the end and having a wedding kind of resolves all the tensions. There's a tragedy where a character progressively falls because of their fatal flaw, and there is rebirth, where the hero is trapped in death or in death-like circumstances and must find a way to be reborn. Now, the cool thing is the story of the Scriptures that the the Bible tells is the greatest story. Because actually, and I did this in my head, I'm not going to do it for you, but I did this this week. I told the story of Scripture from all seven of those perspectives. The story of the Bible is actually, uh, you know, it's a story that contains all the other stories. It's the meta story. It's the biggest story. For instance, Overcoming the monster. We can tell the story of the Bible from Genesis 3.14. The promise is the seed of the woman will overcome the seed of the serpent. He will strike his heel, the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head, which is actually what the story foretold ends with the crushing of the enemy, overcoming the monster, the greatest monster, the enemy of God, Satan himself. Rebirth, that's easy to do. Jesus was trapped, the hero of the story is trapped in the bonds of death, and in three days he burst forth into a resurrection, and so on and so forth. We can tell the story from any one of these angles. And we call these plots of a story, we call them plot lines. The reason that we call it a plot line is because we can visualize a line going up and down, and that's how we tell a story. The line must rise, the line must fall. Otherwise, you don't have a story. And today, I guess the angle that we would take if we were telling the story of Jesus Christ and what He did for us would be the rags-to-riches story. Because the line goes like this. In this case, it's actually a riches-to-rags-to-riches, which is a common theme you see in stories. Maybe a prince starts out as a prince, and then he becomes uh, a pauper, and then he becomes a prince again. But this line goes down and it goes up, and this is the story that we have of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enjoys the riches 
of, of His heavenly Father and His Spirit, the Trinity, and He leaves those riches to come to earth, the line goes down all the way to death where you would think would be a flat line, but then it goes below that because He goes into the grave for three days and then God raises Him and the plot line goes up. Jesus is restored and returns to the riches that He has at the right hand of the Father. And this is the story that Paul tells us in Philippians 2. But he does so in a way that tells us this is the story. (coughs) But you are a part of that story. You live in that story. If you're with Christ, that story is your story. Here's the main point this morning. The story that Jesus lived for us is the same story that He now lives in us. So, the two parts of the passage tell what Jesus did, but then also tells us how we should live in light of that. The story that Jesus lived for us is the same story that He now lives in us. Why does this matter? I think because most of us have these moments where we realize, what is the story that I'm living in? Is it essentially a story of self-interest? Is there a feeling that everything that I do is for myself, uh, that benefits me? How can I just have the best life for myself? And most of us, if we're honest, realize the weakness and the emptiness of that story. And we want something beyond ourselves. But at times, every single one of us, (coughs) like a bad movie or a bad story, we lose the plot. What am I doing again? What is this about? What am I trying to accomplish with my life? Am I serving anything greater than myself? What is the plot line? Well, The Bible tells us it's the line that Christ already has gone before us. That's how we live. We live in Him. The key to the whole passage is in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the linking verse between the two parts. You are to have this mind. It's yours and it's hidden in Christ. That's how you get it. So we're going to look at the story that Jesus lived for us, and then we'll look at the story that Jesus lives in us. First, the story that Jesus lived for us. This is the second half of the passage. This is the plot line. Unity, humility, sacrifice, glory. That's the whole story of Christ. It begins in unity. Look at verse 6 with me. It says this, "...who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." Jesus was in the form of God. The word there is morphe, like we have our word metamorphosis. He was in the form of God. That is, He was the very nature, the very essence of God. And God existed in three persons, as we know. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is 
the place where Jesus began his journey. It was in a place of complete unity. Jesus had a shared life within himself. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's where he begins. He begins with the riches, the unity of himself. And then, as we're told, this story, he moves into humility. Look again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus did not grasp onto this status of equality with God, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. Now the plot line is going down. Jesus descends. Now, we have to pause our story for just a moment because this brings up all kinds of questions that we have about who Jesus is. There's really two tricky issues that have to be addressed here. So if you'll forgive me, we'll be in a theology class for just a minute because I, it's important that we be Orthodox Christians and understand what it is that Jesus actually did for us. The first issue is this. What is the nature of Jesus' identity? Is he God? Is he man? Is he a mixture of, of both? And the early church fought this out. We, they struggled this out. The conclusion, not to bury the lead, the orthodox position is that Jesus is truly God and he is truly man forever. Now, I say the words truly very important, very significantly right there. He is truly God and truly man. Sometimes people say he's fully God or fully man or 100% God and 100% man. I prefer not to speak of it that way, though that makes some amount of sense. Because when I think about percentages or about fullness, I'm thinking about amounts. And so we're kind of in our heads thinking, well, Jesus had an amount of deity and an amount of humanity, but that is not how personhood works. It's not an amount. He was truly God and truly man. And that's important because those are both true, but he is not God and man in the same way. He was God before he was man. He existed with the Father and the Son. What the story tells us is that Jesus added flesh to his divinity. He came in the flesh. But he has been always been God and continues to be God. Analogies would break down here very quickly, but I will risk one. So I am truly a man. Some of you may doubt that, but I am. I'm a man. Um, all right. I'm truly a man, and I'm truly a husband. Am I 100% man and 100% husband? That doesn't make sense, right? Yes, in a sense, right? But I'm truly a man and a truly husband. Both of those are securely part of my identity. But one identity precedes the other. I was a man, and now I'm a man and a husband. Because in time, I was married, and so I added that identity. Now, I'm no less husband because it was added later. I'm, I'm truly husband, but it was added later. Now, this seems like I'm being really pedantic about details. Why does this matter? Why does this distinction matter? Because it matters for the second really tricky question that we have here. 
which is what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Of what did Christ empty himself? Seems like if you were just reading it straightforwardly, you might think that he emptied himself of being the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But that's not, in fact, what happens here. And it's, what happens is Jesus empties himself by taking on another morphe. Remember, we define what Jesus is. He's in the form of God, morphe, but then he takes the form of a servant. He adds divinity, flesh to his divinity. He made himself a servant. So ironically, he emptied himself by adding something. So the reason why I bring up that distinction is because Jesus emptied himself only according to his humanity. He did not empty himself of his divine attributes. He emptied himself by becoming man. What does that mean? Well, John Calvin probably gives us the best uh, illustration of how this works when he says, look, think of it this way. Man is mortal. Man and woman, we're mortal. That's an appropriate thing to say. That's true. But our souls are eternal. And so he says, because we can't sharply distinguish between the soul and the body, we are a unity, it's still appropriate to say we are mortal, but it's also appropriate to say, more specifically, we're mortal with reference to our bodies, our earthly bodies. See, that is us. We die. But us also lives forever. All of these things dissolve into mystery, of course. But we need to see that Jesus remains and always has been God himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of the servant. What does that mean? It means he emptied himself of his riches. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, He who was rich for your sake became poor. He emptied himself of his glory in the, in the heavenly places. John 17, when Jesus is praying the night before his crucifixion, what does he pray to the Father? He says, glorify me now with the same glory that I had before the world existed. See, something of Christ's glory was lost. But mostly it means that what Jesus did is he submitted to his humanity. He was truly human. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He was sleepy. He learned a trade of masonry in his life. There were times when he was sad, grieved, when he was angry when he was happy. Most importantly, the thing that he shared with us is death, which is what redeems us. And so, this is his humiliation. His riches that were lost, the plot goes down, he humiliated himself. This is the story, let's go back to the plot. Sacrifice is the third stage of the plot. Verse 8 with me says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' full humiliation. 
It leads all the way to the point of suffering and death. Jesus suffered and was acquainted with grief from the moment that he was born, the Scriptures tell us, and he was obedient to the Father to the point of death. The plot goes to the very bottom line, but then even below as he goes into the grave. Three days, the world waits in sorrow. That's the story that they experience. We don't have to, we can look at the story and tell it even more quickly how quickly Paul moves us out of that sacrifice and tells us what happens next. Glory. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God exalts Jesus. How does he do that? Well, Paul is assuming here what he elsewhere says very particularly, what happens in the exaltation of Christ begins with the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was reborn, resurrected into the world. He appeared on earth to many. He ascended into heaven, and then he sits at the right hand of the Father and is crowned and given the name above every name. He is highly exalted. The only time in the Bible those words are used, super exalted. He is the highest. He has the highest exaltation. And God gives him the name that is above every name. What is that name? It's not Jesus. He's already ga- he already gave him that name. You shall call this son Jesus, he tells Mary. This is not Jesus, the name that he gives him. This is, the, this is the name of status. This is the name of kingship. This is the name of eternal reigning. It encompasses all authority. He gives him the title Lord. Lord of all. That's the story. Paul has just told us in a few verses this amazing riches to rags to riches story. What Jesus has done for us. Now he says, that same story is the story that Jesus accomplishes within you. To give your life meaning, purpose, direction. This is how we live. We live the plot line of Christ. You live this way. You who have maybe lost the plot. I mean, from the very beginning in Genesis 3, when we fell in the garden, when we rebelled in the garden, we lost the plot to live a life with God under His good provision. And the rest of the story is returning us back to that place. And so if you are feeling like you've lost the plot, like your life doesn't have meaning, or that you want to understand what truly matters, or any of these types of huge questions that all of us, no matter how old or experienced we are, wrestle with, there is an invitation here to return to the story of Christ, to find your life. And it's the exact same story. The first verses of Philippians 2 mimic the same type of movement that he's going to later say happens to Christ. Unity, humility, sacrifice, and glory. Unity. Paul says, 
I want you to have this unity. Look at verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What does that language remind you of? I want you to be full of love. I want you to have participation in the Spirit. I want you to reflect the Trinity, is what he's saying. You see how the story that's been told about Christ is now the story that Paul is telling us we need to live in Christ, to have that perfect disposition towards one another, to have and want the same things, to have full accord, to have love, fellowship together. You can now share in that. And so, if you've lost the plot, then then you return first and foremost by coming to the people of God, by coming to His church, by having participation in the body together. You were not made to be alone. And part of the reason that we lose the plot is that we feel like we need to be out there doing things on our own. But come back, he says. Come back to unity Come back to humility. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is your invitation to go down like Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Word there is vainglory or empty glory. But in humility, he says, the word there, this means lowliness. It's the same word that is used of Christ in Matthew chapter 11. We're told that Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is of low estate. The same word that Mary uses when she says, when she hears the news that she's going to have Jesus, she says, behold, your servant is of low estate. Christianity is a race to the bottom. Who can be humble? Who can love and serve others? I love Romans chapter 12, which says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's a competition. (laughs) Outdo one another in showing honor. It's a race to the bottom. But so often that's not how we live, is it? We live in a vain way. We edge into conversations, ways that we're kind of better than others. We want to seem more impressive than we are. We want others to feel like we're more impressive than we actually are. And that is a bad idea. Because, just practically speaking, one of two things will happen. It will be true that we are better than them in some kind of way that we have defined for ourselves. And if that's true, we'll probably look like a jerk. We'll probably discourage friendship and connection. Or it may not be true. And it's just puffed up pride. It's vainglory. It's empty glory. And then we look like fools. There is no upside to vanity. What's the Christian path? Let others exalt you. 
Let others exalt you. And if you are never noticed, you will always have the smile of the Father in heaven who sees. And that smile is enough. But sometimes you get even more. Sometimes others will see the work that you do and will exalt you. If you've lost the plot, if you're wondering what is the purpose of my life, where do I find life, it may be that you examine this. How are you living in selfish ambition and vainglory? If, there, if you're in Christ, you return to this path. You actually find your life in humiliation. It's a beautiful story, and the story is not over yet. You will be exalted. But the path to exaltation always goes down first. It begins in humility. And many of us need to return there. We've been thinking too much of ourselves. We've been self-aggrandizing. We've been wondering about how others will see how good we are. But that's not the path that Jesus has shown us. Shown us. The next plot point is sacrifice. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. We are called to sacrifice our interests. Jesus sacrificed his life, but it's interesting, the scriptures do not tell us that we need to give up our physical life in usual circumstances for following him. There's very little in scripture about becoming a martyr. Now, the martyrs were important. That, I'm, not, I'm not denigrating that. But normally, we are not called to give our lives, our physical lives, to follow Christ. But the Bible talks all the time about the metaphor of dying to, to different things. Romans 12, we are to be living sacrifices. How amazing is that language? The oxymoron, the seemingly contrasting things, living sacrifices. What does that mean? As we live our lives, we live our lives according to pouring ourselves out, sacrificing our interest, our desires. First Peter tells us we are to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Jesus died for us. That's a unique sacrifice, but he invites us into a story where we die. We die. When we want to return to the plot, when we want to find meaning and direction for our lives, we need to ask ourselves this, what are the things that I need to die to and live toward? It always involves sacrifice. Die to sin. Die to self, the Scripture says. Live to righteousness. Live for the sake of others. And then glory, not spoken about specifically here in Philippians, but implied at the end here where every knee bows in heaven and on earth to Jesus. We are brought into his presence. Jesus Christ was restored to the right hand of the Father and all of his riches. And do you know that because Christ was exalted and you have union with him, if you have union with him, you too will be exalted. Have you ever been warmly welcomed? Have you ever felt like somebody was really glad to see you and their warmth honored you, fulfilled you, 
emanated from them and glorified you. That is the invitation that we receive. That longing we have is a deep one. And the promise of Scripture is, you fill your life with humiliation that Christ suffered, the sacrifices that He endured, then you can expect the glory that He received. God will turn your rags to riches. Your disobedience to righteousness. Your family dysfunction to the connection that you long for. Your hungers to satisfactions. Your sorrows and losses to joys and fulfillment. You will receive what Christ receives. The riches, the inheritance, a new name, and the open arms of a welcome father, welcoming Father. In short, all that is Christ's is yours. How do you get those things? It is not by becoming Christ. Paul doesn't say, because Christ did this as an example, now you go out and do the exact same thing that he did in every single way. No. We don't get these things by becoming Christ. He says, have this mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ was unique. We don't become Christ, but we take hold of Him by faith. We're united to Him by faith. And His path, His story, His plot becomes our plot. Becomes our story. He invites us into this adventurous story. We are called to focus on the things that He did on earth. The unity that he had with the Father. The humility that he showed. The sacrifice. We follow those same plot points. And we look forward to the day when God will do what he did with Jesus. He will exalt us and bring us home forever. Let's pray.